Friends, as we continue to worship our Lord together, let me now invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Daniel chapter 9. And in this chapter, we will get to hear Daniel pray. Daniel prays for himself and the people of Israel. He intercedes on their behalf. And as we listen to his prayer, we will learn what Daniel knows to be true about God and his people. Now chapter 9 also records for us the Lord's response to Daniel's prayer. The Lord answers him with another apocalyptic vision of what is to come. So this morning we will consider his prayer and next week we will consider the answer to that prayer. Though we will look at that answer very briefly to understand the Lord's glorious purposes for Daniel and for us. So please look with me at Daniel 9 verses 1 to 19. Let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we ask that the truths of this passage would make us more fervent in prayer as we fix our eyes on the new Jerusalem our heavenly home. Oh, that we may rejoice in what Christ has accomplished for us. May we know great comfort in his tender mercies. Help us to see the misery of our sin and help us to see the riches of his kindness that he has lavished on us. Father, lead us in the paths of righteousness for your namesake and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What does prayer have to do with our ongoing relationship with Jesus? Charles Spurgeon once said, prayer is the natural outgushing of the soul in communion with Jesus. Prayer is the natural outgushing of the soul in communion with Jesus. But for that communion, that lively fellowship with the triune God to be true, it must be founded on the truth. And that truth, of course, is the Spirit-inspired Word of God. For no true fellowship with God can transpire apart from hearing the voice of the risen Christ speaking to us from the Scriptures. We must hear the Word. We must believe the word, meditate on the word, understand the word, and have our desires and affections transformed to delight in the word and obey the word. The Christian who does that is walking in fellowship or communion with the triune God. And he can't help but pray God-glorifying prayers. Which is why Spurgeon also said, the best praying man is the man who is most believingly familiar with the promises of God. Isn't that a great phrase? Believingly familiar. He doesn't just know the word, but wholeheartedly trusts in it. After all, said Spurgeon, prayer is nothing but taking God's promises to him and saying to him, do as thou hast said. A prayer which is not based on a promise has no true foundation, says Spurgeon. 
Now in chapter 9 of Daniel, we see that Daniel prays because he is believingly familiar with the promises of God. After receiving God's word in the form of apocalyptic visions, Daniel pondered over these truths and he sought to understand them with God's help. The Lord revealed to Daniel through these visions that one day he would destroy the kingdoms of this world and establish his everlasting kingdom. This kingdom would be established through the conquest of the Messiah, the coming Son of Man to whom would be given an everlasting dominion so that all peoples would worship him. Daniel learned that Babylon would soon be toppled by the Medo-Persians. He also saw that the Medo-Persian Empire would be overthrown by the Greeks and out of that kingdom would come a little horn, a ruler who would persecute God's people and desecrate the temple. This was all very unsettling for Daniel to see. On one hand, this meant that the exile in Babylon would soon be over. God's judgment on the nation of Israel for their idolatry and their covenant unfaithfulness was going to be over. Uh, they would soon be back in the land and the temple was going to be rebu rebuilt. But on the other hand, Daniel was greatly grieved that his people would be judged yet again, persecuted again, temple overthrown again. He saw that after the kingdom of Greece would come another kingdom and many kings would arise after that embodying the spirit of that wicked kingdom. This is the fourth beast that Daniel saw in chapter 7. The fourth beast is different from the others in that it points beyond itself to the very end of the age. The fourth beast as we saw is Rome and beyond. So you can look at that diagram on page 13. Daniel's vision in in chapter 9 expands upon the kingdom of Rome and beyond and tells us about the work of the Son of Man. And just like the fourth beast is shown to be exceedingly wicked, so will be the kingdoms of this world in the last days. Daniel has also shown that towards the end of the age there will arise another evil ruler, much like others before him in his hostility towards God and his people, but only greater in his appetite for evil. This is the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness as Paul calls him in 2 Thessalonians verses, chapter 2 verse 3. He will oppose God, oppose his worship and persecute God's people. He will make war against the saints and prevail over them. But God will end his tyranny at the second coming of Christ. He will destroy him and give the kingdom to his saints. Now, as much as Daniel struggled to understand all of this, it didn't stop him from pursuing the ordinary faithfulness that the Lord had required of him in exile. Daniel kept on doing that. And then one day, while Belshazzar was partying, the Medo-Persians conquered the kingdom just as the Lord had said. Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. So this passage in chapter 9 takes us back to that time of transition. Daniel now has a new boss, a friendly one, Darius. But Daniel certainly knew enough not to put his hope in a new government, didn't he? We've already read chapter 6. You can still end up in the lion's den with a seemingly friendly government. But after the first six chapters that tell us about Daniel's public life and the life of his friends 
after the first two visions in chapters 7 and 8, the writer suddenly stops to give us a glimpse of Daniel's private life so that we can see what motivated this old man, what drove him and how he related to God. You know, this is the part in, in chapters 7 to 12 when you feel like you're watching this apocalyptic movie and then the reel stops for the interval so that we can focus on the present. The third vision picks up in chapter 9 verses 24 to 27 and then chapters 10 to 12 is one big vision, the fourth vision. And so as we consider the first 19 verses of chapter 9 this morning, we will see three things. Number one, we'll see a catalyst for prayer. Two, a confession of sin. And three, a cry for mercy. But first, let's consider that first point, a catalyst for prayer. What's going on that moves Daniel to pray like this? Look at verses 1 to 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerosh, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. You can tell what Daniel is doing. He's locating himself in history. Chapter 5 verse 31 tells us that Darius the Mede received the kingdom when Babylon fell. And here we are told that he was made king. These Passive verbs are consistent with the big theme in the book of Daniel that it is the Lord, the Most High, who sets up kings and removes them. So Darius' ancestry is named so that we don't confuse him with other kings who were also named Darius. This Darius, for a short while, was co-regent with King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king. Darius was sort of a governor king until Cyrus, who was fighting battles elsewhere, decided to enter Babylon. Verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books. You know, this refers to writings, to the scrolls of scripture that Daniel had in his possession. It's a remarkable thing that we, we see here. When one kingdom is overthrown by another, when there is unrest and instability, Daniel turns to the word. He turns to Bible study. The text says that he perceived in them, which means he came to an understanding of the text after careful consideration, after much meditation and study. Friends, what do you turn to in times of turmoil? What did Daniel perceive? Look at the text. The number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. That's what he was reading. He was reading Jeremiah. And he came to understand a certain number of years had to be fulfilled. They must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now that phrase, the desolations of Jerusalem, refers to its destruction by the Babylonians. God poured out, if you remember, he poured out his judgment on the people of Judah for their covenant unfaithfulness. And he used King Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of his wrath to level the temple and the city. Nebuchadnezzar burnt it to the ground and the city lay in ruins. But Jeremiah prophesied that after a period of 70 years, the Lord would punish Babylon for their cruelty and bring his people back to the land. We hear these words of judgment from the Lord in Jeremiah 25 verse 11. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall, shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 
But then you also hear these words of hope. Jeremiah 29 verses 10 to 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I will give you a future and a hope, said the Lord. And friends, we who stand on this side of the cross know what that future and hope is. It's a future that Daniel saw in his visions but didn't quite understand. A future filled with trials and tribulations. But it was also filled with hope, a messianic hope. Beloved, in Christ Jesus we have entered into that hope and we wait for it with patience. Jesus Christ has inaugurated the kingdom of God in his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. But his kingdom is not yet fully here in glory. He now reigns over his church as head and we are united to him and seated with him in the heavenly places. But one day he will return to judge evildoers and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, we have been given these truths in God's infallible word. Now in Daniel's day, he too looked to the scriptures. He studied the word and he understood that the Lord would bring back his people to the land. He saw that the Medo-Persians had come to power. And this was an indication that the exile was soon going to come to an end. Remember, Daniel has been in exile since 605 BC. And Babylon fell in 538, 539 BC. That's roughly 67 years. What does that tell you? Time's almost up. So what does Daniel do? Well, he could have just sat back and let history run its course. After all, God is sovereign. He's got this. But that's not what Daniel does. Look at verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Beloved, the catalyst for Daniel's prayer is scripture. It is his trust in God's word that provokes him to pray according to God's will. It is the promise that 70 years must be fulfilled before the exile is over that prompts Daniel to pray for mercy, to pray for forgiveness, to pray for restoration, and to pray for the fulfillment of those promises. Friends, when you read your Bible, are you prompted to pray like this? in line with what you have just read? Do you understand what you have read? Have you dwelt long enough on the text so as to know what it is saying? To know what it means? To know what it reveals to you about God and what He requires of you? Are your prayers grounded in what God has revealed to you about himself and his redemptive purposes for you in Christ. Beloved, if what you have read has not caused your soul to gush out in prayer, 
asking the Lord to enable you by His Spirit's power to live faithfully, then you have not read your Bible well. If you read your Bible and you don't pray according to His will as revealed in the Scriptures, then you have not had communion with God. You have merely engaged in an unprofitable reading activity. Don't approach your Bible reading time as a superstitious or magical activity. But love the Lord with all your mind. Pay attention to His Word. Don't treat your Bible reading as, as merely one activity to accomplish before you get to your prayer time. But let the Word inform your prayers. Ephesians 6.18 says that we must pray at all times in the Spirit. And that means we must pray God's thoughts after Him. We need to pray according to His will. We need to recognize what His purposes and promises to us are so that our prayers are pleasing to our Father. Brothers and sisters, let your prayers be scriptural prayers. You know, Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 is a good example of such a prayer. Daniel says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, he says. Now we know this about Daniel from chapter 6, don't we? He prayed three times a day with his face towards Jerusalem. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed to God and said, Lord, if your people are in a foreign land and they pray towards your temple where you have put your name, hear them, O Lord. Answer their prayers. You can see that in 1 Kings 8, 29. Daniel knew that. He knew that God had promised to hear him. And so he sought the Lord. He called on him in prayer and he pleaded with him to be merciful. Notice what these petitions are. They are pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And if fasting or abstaining from food is a way of denying yourself from food in order to communicate to the Lord that He is more important, He is more satisfying than any good thing that He has given His people, including food. People would fast when they would seek the Lord's help in times of danger or when they would turn to the Lord in repentance. Sackcloth and ashes were outward signs of an inner disposition of the heart. So people would wear sackcloth when they would mourn for the dead or repent. Sackcloth is a black cloth made of goat or camel's hair. You would tie it around your waist and then sit on the floor in ashes or sprinkle ashes on your head. Hence the tradition of wearing black at a funeral. It symbolizes grief or mourning over loss. But here's what you must note. When Daniel realizes that God has promised to bring the exile to an end, note the content of his prayer. Daniel doesn't rush in without giving careful thought to his words. Nor does he immediately say, yes, Lord, may it all end very soon. No, he realizes something about God from that very promise in Jeremiah. And it prompts a biblical prayer. But it's a prayer of confession of sin. Hence the fasting and the sackcloth, the promise of return and the end of exile prompts Daniel to mourn over his sin and the sins of his people. And that brings us to our second point. We see in this passage a confession 
of sin. Look at verse 4. I pray to the Lord my God. When you see the word Lord in caps, that is a reference to Yahweh, the covenant name of the God of Israel, the God who called Abraham to himself and set apart his offspring to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests and a treasured possession. The God who set his love on them to fulfill his redemptive purposes for the world through his Messiah, according to the flesh, would come from the seed of Israel. Daniel's talking about that God and he calls him my Lord, my God. He's praying to one he is personally acquainted with. Daniel prays to the Lord that he knows very well. Beloved, do you know the one who you are praying to? It's very hard to talk to someone you don't know, isn't it? It's kind of awkward. And you may not have much to say. Love it if your prayers are like this. Have you considered that you may not know God as well as you should? Have you considered that you need to grow in your knowledge of God? Beloved, our God is not silent. He speaks to his people through his word and we are invited by his grace to not just know facts about him, but to know him. Enter into a rich and joyful communion with our God and Savior as you meditate and study his word and you will find your prayers becoming more meaningful and rich and thoughtful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that your prayers are glorifying to God. This is what Paul prayed for the Colossians. Colossians 1, 9-10. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And friends, one such good work is a healthy prayer life. Prayer, as John Calvin put it, is the chief exercise of faith. James tells us in James 5, 16 to 17, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You know, the righteous person in the book of James is the one who is justified by faith in Christ, a faith that is alive and works. And why does that prayer of a righteous person, why does it have great power? Well, he says, because it's working. And that points back to the object of this righteous man's faith. And to help us understand that, he gives us an example. James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, three and a half years, it did not rain on the earth. Now, if you go back and read 1 Kings 17, 1, we find Elijah, a prophet, someone who speaks God's word on his behalf, declares that it won't rain for these years. And James tells us that he prayed. What was the basis for that prayer? Why was it powerful? Because it was according to the word of the Lord. Daniel prays and the text says he made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You know, what Daniel says here is very instructive. Before he begins to confess his sins and the sins of his people, he praises God 
These are words of adoration. Oh Lord, the great and awesome God, he says. You know, that's straight out of Deuteronomy 7, verse 21. Where Moses tells the people, you shall not be in dread of them, referring to the people who occupied the land of Canaan. Don't be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. God is awe-inspiring. He is almighty, all-powerful, and greatly to be feared. Moses is, was teaching the people of Israel not to fear men by reminding them how fearsome God is. Beloved, when you approach the Lord in prayer, you better know who you're talking to. Yes, He is your Heavenly Father. Because of what Christ has done for you, but we dare not approach him in a trifling way. Beginning with prayer, praise or adoration helps us remember who God is. It helps us remember that our God is a consuming fire and we are to speak to him with reverence and awe. But we must also remember who we are before him. You know, today we might say something like, we are by his grace children of God adopted into his family because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what the saints in the Old Testament would do? They would remember the Exodus. They would remember that great revelation of God at Sinai. Exodus 34, 6, 7, when he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or they would remember Exodus 20, verses 5 to 6. I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, Daniel is extolling God's faithfulness. He is one who is always true to his character and he always acts according to his nature. He always keeps his promise. There is no shadow of turning with him. He's always true to his covenant. He always keeps up his end of the bargain. His love is loyal and true and unfailing. He shows steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. In other words, these are the covenant obligations of his people. They are to love their Redeemer, the one who brought them out of Egypt. They are to love him and keep his commandments out of a great love for him. Daniel's words of praise for the Lord now sets the stage to properly confess sin. In light of who the Lord is and in light of what his people are called to do, we begin to see that it's, it's not the Lord who has failed, but his people. Look at verses 5 to 6. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel confesses by saying, we have sinned. He not only confesses his sin, but he also intercedes for his people. 
Now, typically priests would intercede on behalf of the people, but prophets would do so also. Think of Moses interceding for Israel before God when they sinned by worshiping the golden calf. Daniel's visions are not only prophetic, but Jesus himself calls Daniel a prophet in Matthew 24, verse 15. And so Daniel intercedes. Now notice the six different ways Daniel confesses Israel's sin and guilt. Number one, we have sinned. To sin is to miss the mark, to fall short of God's glory. It is to be at fault. Number two, to do wrong means to deal unjustly. This Hebrew word can be translated as something twisted or bent. It's crooked. It's the opposite of straight. It is a deviation, a perversion of all that is right and just. Number three, to act wickedly is to behave in a way that is morally reprehensible, evil, in a way that violates or harms, to transgress. Number four, to rebel is to rise up against someone. And in this case, they rebelled against the Lord. They committed treason against their maker and spiritual adultery against the Lord by giving themselves to the worship of other gods. Number five, to turn aside from his commandments and rules is to abandon his covenant word. They departed. They changed direction. They went astray. Number six, to not listen is to not heed. It is to turn a deaf ear to the Lord. Daniel is saying the same thing in different ways. It's as though he's saying if sin had flavors, you would find them all in Israel and we have been soaking in our sins. And notice how pervasive Israel's unfaithfulness was. It extended to everyone, their rulers, kings and princes, their elders, our fathers for many generations and all the people. You see what Daniel is doing? He's confessing the exceeding sinfulness of their sin. And he's not trying to sugarcoat Israel's offenses in any way. What Daniel is doing is he's taking God's side against sin. He's confessing it as vile and offensive, repulsive and shocking, wretched and treacherous. He's calling it for what it is as the Lord would describe and define it. Listen to how the Westminster Confession of Faith defines sin. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Beloved, think of all the ways Scripture describes sin. Sin is uncleanness. It pollutes. Paul describes it as leaven. It spreads like a spiritual cancer. It is a spiritual disease describing sinners as blind, deaf, as those with hardened hearts and uncircumcised ears. Sin lies, it steals, it destroys. One author writes, and I quote, Sin is anti-law, anti-righteousness, anti-God, anti-spirit, anti-life. It is irrational. It is deviant. It is perverse. It is injustice, iniquity, ingratitude. In the book of Exodus, sin is disorder and disobedience. It's faithlessness, lawlessness, godlessness. 
Sin is the overstepping of a line and a failure to reach it. It is both a transgression and a shortcoming. It is a spoiling of goods, a staining of garments, a hitch in one's gate, a wandering from the path, and a fragmenting of a whole. End quote. Beloved, sin both corrupts and pollutes and defiles. And before the blazing holiness of God, we stand filthy, wretched, and condemned. There is no sin of ours that we can hide before his holy gaze. He knows our every thought, every desire, every emotion. He hears every word. He sees every deed. He knows every motive. Our sins are a personal affront to God. And we have the audacity to do it with the very breath that he gives us. Beloved, you cannot confess your sins well if you haven't seen them for what they truly are. We must see our sins with scriptural eyes. We must grieve. We must mourn over our sins as we confess them to Christ. You see, the grace of true repentance begins by seeing the beastliness of our iniquities in light of scripture. We must see the exceeding sinfulness of our sins. Now you might be thinking, well, isn't that too much? Is that the way I'm supposed to think of my seething anger? Is that the way I'm supposed to think of my lustful thoughts, my crude joking, my sharp words? Is that what I should be doing, meditating on how offensive my lack of love and concern for the spiritual well-being of others is to God? How vile my sin of pornography is to the Lord before I confess it? And my answer to that is yes, a thousand times yes. Beloved, if you don't see how treacherous your sin is, you won't understand how glorious Christ is. Don't trivialize your sin. If you have been struggling with the sin of lust and pornography for a long time, with no significant victory over it, and you feel like you can't stop, I wonder, I wonder if you have really mourned over your sin. Have you gone to your Savior and said, Lord, I have sinned, I have done wrong, I have acted wickedly, I have rebelled, I have spat on the goodness of God and His grace, I have turned aside from your commandments and rules, I have not listened to your voice in the scriptures, I have not heeded the counsel of my pastors, instead I have schemed and planned to do evil. Why are you so hospitable to your sin? Why do you pamper it? Why do you play with it? Why do you flirt with it? Why do you make room for your flesh? Brothers and sisters, don't you know that this is treachery against the throne of God? Don't you know that this is a betrayal of your Savior? Don't you know that this grieves His Spirit? Be wretched and mourn and weep. It is pleasing to God to come before him brokenhearted over your sin. Psalm 51 verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Friends, you should never see your sin in its nature as trivial when you confess it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn. 
for they shall be comforted. If you don't see the perverseness of sin, you will not be able to grasp the glory of this statement that for our sake, our wretched sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, the comfort of forgiving grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, our culture, on the other hand, celebrates sin. While Christians in our city sadly trivialize it and tolerate it. Brothers, this should not be so. As believers, we have been born again. We have been given a new heart and God's spirit abides in us. We ought to hate our sin with a holy hatred, remembering that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on our behalf so that we might be forgiven and live for Christ. Don't just process this logically. Think about what the word says. Do you remember that great passage in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27? That passage that looks forward to the new covenant. God says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We love that verse, don't we? Oh, we love it. We rejoice in that. And we should. But if you read a few verses further, we're given a description of what our new relationship ought to be towards our sin. Ezekiel 36 verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Beloved, there is a kind of self-loathing that is right. It is the mark of a new heart. To mourn over the wickedness of your sins. We must loathe. We must mourn over our sins. The Puritans used to say that with regard to their sins, Christians are called to a perpetual brokenheartedness. One author writes, what distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. The church is the only body on earth that confesses sin. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. End quote. It's true, isn't it? You know, the Sharjah Executive Council doesn't meet to confess their sins. The people at the White House or the World Health Organization, or the Rashtrapati Bhavan don't meet to confess their sins before a holy God. What government, what club, what institution does that? It's the local church. We do this because we have a savior, because we have come to know him who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Faithful and just to do that because Jesus paid it all. See, Daniel was reading about the promise of God that the exile would soon be over, but Daniel remembers what brought about the exile in the first place. 
It was the Lord's judgment on their wickedness for breaking their covenant and worshiping other gods and adopting pagan practices. And so he confesses the sins and his sins and the sins of the people. But Daniel also confesses that it was right for God to judge his people. He is the righteous one. Look at verses 7 to 8. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. You know, this word literally means that our face has changed, our countenance has fallen, and it's visible to all, and we deserve it, says Daniel. The Lord is right in all that he does, and no matter how bad it looks for us, how shameful it looks in the eyes of the world, how much we are suffering in exile, the Lord has done no wrong. Our consequences are what we deserve. To us belong open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. In other words, no matter where we are and whatever has befallen us, these are the consequences of our sin. Verse 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. This is not because of karma. This is not because of someone else who provoked us. This is not because of those stinking nations who enticed us with their idols. It is because of our sin. Beloved, when you repent, don't make excuses for your sin. Bring them to the Lord like David did, saying, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is wicked in your righteous eyes. This is godly grief, and it produces a repentance that leads to life. But righteousness is not the only attribute that Daniel appeals to. Look at verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. These words are in the plural indicating repeated acts of mercy and repeated acts of forgiveness. To him belonged manifold mercies and abundant forgiveness, he says. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants the prophets. What's Daniel doing here? He's appealing to God's mercies, his compassion and his forgiveness as the grounds for his hope. You see, if Israel is to have any hope for restoration and return to the land, it is found in God's mercy alone. Friends, this is the grounds for our hope as well. It is the grounds for our forgiveness and the foundation for the Christian life. Isn't that what we sing no separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live, but Jesus died and he rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. This is why we can come to him boldly in prayer and confess our sins both corporately as we do every Sunday and in private and to one another 
We can do this with the assurance that the one who paid the penalty for our sins and imputed to us his righteousness ensures that we have a strong and perfect plea. See, our great high priest intercedes for us and he hears our prayers. So be watchful over your heart. Be watchful over the lives of one another and be fervent in prayer, knowing the immeasurable mercies of God in Christ. But we must never forget that God's righteousness, his faithfulness also ensures and guarantees his judgment. In fact, it is because God is faithful to his word to judge the unfaithful, Daniel can appeal to his mercy. This was certainly true in Israel's history. Look at verses 11 to 14. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Did you notice that just as Daniel confesses sin in many ways, he also refers to God's word using different terms? Throughout the passage, we see God's word, his covenant, his commandments, his rules, his word through his prophets, his voice, his laws, the law of Moses. It heightens the offense, doesn't it? Israel was unfaithful to the Lord by not loving his word and abiding in it. And because of all this, all the curses of the covenant came upon them. Look at the text. And the curse and the oath. Those, are, those two words are used in a pair to convey the same idea. This is the curse embodied in the oath or the promise. The curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words. The faithfulness of God ensures his holy judgment. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. In other words, God has been faithful. He did what he said he would do if we were unfaithful. A great tragedy has befallen us, says Daniel, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. In other words, God made a point. He made a point. You know, these curses are recorded for us in several portions of Scripture. You can read about them in Leviticus 26, verses 14 to 46, Deuteronomy 12, 14 to 16, Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 18. Some of these curses were disease, famine, infertility, madness, destruction of crops and property, attacks by wild animals and enemy nations, the slaughter of men, women, and children, horrific cannibalism in times of famine, but ultimately exile. They would be carried away as captives to faraway lands away from the promised land. All this came upon them and they suffered the consequences of their rebellion. But that was not the real tragedy. That was not the real tragedy. See, the real tragedy was that they were still unrepentant. Look at verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Did you see that? 
Despite suffering under the devastating consequences of their sin, the people of Israel had largely remained unrepentant and unchanged. They had not turned back to God's word to gain understanding so that they could be faithful. They did not have godly grief as Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians 7. Those who were faithful, the remnant, they were few. Daniel was among them and yet he intercedes just like Moses did for Israel's unfaithfulness. Israel had continued in their covenant infidelity in the past just as they were doing in the present. And because of their stubborn heartedness the text says therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice. Friends this teaches us a very important a very important lesson about sin and repentance. No amount of pain or suffering has the power to produce a changed heart. It was right for God to judge his people. But we know from these visions that even though the people of Israel will return to the land, Babylon would always remain in their hearts. God would need to rescue his people with a mighty hand. And so Daniel cries out for mercy. And that brings us to our third and final point. A cry for mercy. Look at verses 15 to 19. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Daniel makes his request, his supplication based on God's great redemptive act in the Exodus. You see, the story of the Exodus is crucial for understanding Old Testament theology. And it prepares us for the coming Son of Man in Daniel's vision. Israel's redemption from Egypt teaches us that the Creator God, who is sovereign over all things, is the very God who saves His people. He delivers them. That's what redemption means. He sets his people free. And he does this because he is a faithful God who keeps his covenant promises to his people. He fulfills those promises for the sake of his own glory. But it also teaches us that the only way for sinners to move from slavery to freedom is for God to intervene. And he does so through his mediator. By his grace... God reveals himself, makes his power known, and rescues his people so that all nations would see his glory and come to know him and worship him. And Daniel appeals to the Exodus. He appeals to God's name. He appeals to his glory because of Israel's sin. See, this is why we read chapter 9 as one unit. Because it contains the Lord's answer to Daniel's plea. We've already learned that his kingdom is coming. And that the Davidic Messiah, the son of man will conquer. And he will be given an everlasting kingdom. But look down at verses 9, verses 24 to 27 of chapter 9. 
the Lord tells us that an anointed one, the Messiah, will be cut off from the land of living in order to atone for the sins of his people, to bring in an everlasting righteousness and to put an end to sacrifice and offering. Daniel's prayer appeals to God's redemptive work in the Exodus and God answers him how? Not just with the promise of return from physical exile, but he promises a new Exodus, a deliverance from spiritual exile. You see, the point of the book of Daniel was to teach the exiles to trust in a sovereign God whose word both orders and governs redemptive history. He is a God who not only knows the future, but also controls the future. Therefore, he is a God who makes good on his promises. You see, Daniel's prayer teaches us to look forward to God's coming mercy in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his visions, Daniel knew that God is always doing more than you can see. But his commitment to his glory, to making his name great, that ought to give us great hope, friends. God's commitment to his redemptive purposes and his character and his glory caused him to send his only son into our world, in the flesh, to redeem us from our sins with his own blood. Jesus Christ made atonement for our sins by offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross in order to propitiate God's wrath and judgment. See, his body was the true temple where God and man meet. And that body was desecrated, crucified in the place of every covenant breaker that he came to save. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He is the true mediator who was cut off from the land of the living so that those who repent of their sins and put their trust in his saving death may be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God. He stood condemned in our place so that we might receive his righteousness through faith as a gift of God's grace. And on the third day he rose from the dead to give us new hearts just as he had promised his saints through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ, know that you stand condemned for your sins under God's holy and righteous wrath. Repent of your sins. Agree with God's righteous judgment that you are a sinner, that you deserve his wrath and cry out for his mercy in Christ. Turn away from your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Turn to him and you will be forgiven of all your sins. You see, Daniel knew that something had to be done about God's righteous wrath against his people. And so he appeals to his redemptive mercy. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Jerusalem was on a hill. Mount Zion was called. Turn away because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. When the surrounding nations looked at the ruins of Jerusalem, they ridiculed Israel. Jerusalem had become a byword, meaning it had become an object of scorn and derision and disgrace. And Daniel is pleading with the Lord to not just show mercy and remove wrath, but he's also calling on him to take away our shame. Please, Lord, take away our shame. 
Verse 17, now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, for the sake of your own glory, he prays. O Lord, make your face to shine. You know, this is an appeal to God's favor. Another way of saying this would be, be gracious to us, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Look upon the temple. Notice ultimately why God, Daniel makes his petitions for the sake of the temple which lay in ruins. Daniel prays for the Lord to act so that the true worship of the Lord may be restored. Isn't that the true goal? of God's redemptive mercies in Christ, that those who have gone astray may be reconciled to God so that they can worship Him rightly, according to His word? Friends, I hope you see that this is a prayer of hope. And all of Daniel's supplications will be answered both immediately in the return of his people to the land, but ultimately in Christ Jesus who saves his people from their sins. Daniel pleads for God to respond to his prayers. He appeals to his glory. Verse 18, O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. How often do we pray like this, that our petitions would be answered so that God would be glorified, that he would be made much of? Notice what he says, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. See, Daniel doesn't say, look, Lord, I, I know that most of your people are unrepentant, but at least for my sake. You know, move your redemptive purposes along. I've been pretty faithful. Won't you take that into consideration? No, Daniel knows better, doesn't he? No, the plea is made on the basis of God's great mercy alone. Isn't that how Ephesians 2 reads? But you were dead in your sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Beloved, God's mercies to us in Christ ought to make us very bold and fervent in our prayers of confession and supplication. They ought to be filled with hope as we make our petitions known to him. We see Daniel's boldness and his fervency as he prays. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. In that great redemptive act, when he brought his people out of Egypt, God joined his name to his people, to those who loved him and trusted in his promises. And Daniel knew that the Lord would bring his purposes to pass for his glory and because of the people who are called by his name, his saints. Beloved, we who have put our trust in Jesus Christ along with every other believer, whether Jew or Gentile, now constitute the one new man, the living temple of Jesus Christ, the true Israel of God, where true worship takes place in spirit and in truth, the people who are called by his name. 
And that's why we can come very boldly before God. Knowing that Christ who has ascended into the heavens forever lives to intercede for his people. And we can say and we can pray with faith and hope. Asking according to the word of God. Praising him. Confessing our sins. Asking him to empower us for every good work that he has called us to. We can pray for repentance. We can pray for victory over sin. We can pray for joy in the midst of suffering. We can pray for endurance. We must pray for Christ's return. Trusting in his promise that he will finish the good work that he has begun in us. Beloved, our prayers are the means by which God accomplishes his redemptive purposes. Your prayers and my prayers are the means by which God accomplishes his redemptive purposes. So if you know someone who is unrepentant, perhaps they've heard their gospel, the gospel, and they don't want to listen to you, they oppose you, they hate you, Remember this, they are helpless against your prayers. So pray, trusting in God's power. Our prayers are the means by which God accomplishes his good purpose. So be watchful. Pray for your sanctification. Pray for the sanctification of others so that God would be glorified. Become believingly familiar with God's word. Become believingly familiar with God's word so that you would abound in hope of the glory to come. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we praise you for you are sovereign over all. You know all things and you see all things. Nothing is hidden from your sight. Lord, we marvel at your tender mercies the riches of your kindness that you have lavished on us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we confess that our sins are many and that they are reprehensible. Forgive us, O Lord, for Jesus' sake. Cause our hearts to mourn over our sin even as we wait for the appearing of Christ. O Lord, would you do a work of grace in our hearts so that our repentance would be godly and true. Give us understanding according to the word of Christ and cause us to glory in his purposes. Cause your people to abound in love and in hope. In Christ's name we pray.